Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is... Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory. <laughs> it's Die Hard on a train. Oh, so, second time. Second, second time, time on, on a train. train. Second time on a train. Can't say the quality levels match it's, up. It's not quite at the narrow margin, unstoppable, runaway train Well, you just gave like of, three great uh, movies. Of quality. Quickly rank those three movies. Oof. Um, unstoppable number one. Okay. Uh, narrow margin number two. And runaway train number three. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's all great. great though. Now, where would the film we're talking about today, Under Siege Two: Colon Dark Territory, fit on that list? Somewhere at the bottom of the ocean, um, <laughs> and then buried forever no, in a, no, <laughs> some no. kind of nuclear waste. No, look, why should you? Why should the listeners listen to us talk about this movie that, frankly, ain't the best? I would say that. Uh, look, I always try to find something positive in the movies that we talk about on this show. And I would say that there, this is uh, uh, not the best, maybe the worst movie we've talked about. Without I, I don't question. like Platitudes, Without but it question. isn't a very, it's not a very good movie. It's not, but stick with us because there is something very good about very, this Very, very good about this film. Well, One individual in particular yes. that we've been very excited Steven to talk about. Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's Eric no, Bogosian. It's the Eric Bogosian Appreciation Hour. With your Welcome. host, Liam Billingham and Phil Gawthorne, 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 Gawthorne. We've been excited to talk about this movie purely for that for that reason. There is there is a lot of interesting stuff in it, um, but let's get into it. Uh, so Under Siege 2 was released by Warner Brothers in the U.S. on July 15th, 1995. Two months after our last film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Very which quickly. was May 19th. I know the day that I saw July, I saw uh, Under Siege 2. I was going to ask. Sorry, I, I jumped ahead. Did you? Did July 15th, 1995. Because Bill Billingham was Bill a Billingham. big Seagal guy. Well, no, not even right? a big Seagal guy. Big Under Siege guy. Okay. Like, loved Under Siege. Okay. So we saw, we didn't see Under Siege in the theater, but we saw two Seagal movies in the theater, like opening night or opening weekend. <clears throat> Unfortunately, these were posts under siege, so it was the dark times. It was under siege two and on deadly ground, which actually has a connection to this to this movie beyond the obvious. Oh, I'm curious to, um, to see what that yeah. is. Yeah, actually, I don't know if I am. Uh, so both kind of <laughs> kind of kind of both stinkers as far as movies go, dude. But um, if but, Andrew Davis ain't in the his. It is rough trucking. Well, it's interesting you say Mr. that. Seagal. But uh, please continue the. Uh, please, well, this film. Wait, Phil, this film was continue. directed by Jeff Murphy, um, who also did Free Jack. Free Jack, which a I movie love. that we recently expressed yeah. some um, enthusiasm about on a on a different podcast. That's which right. We'll, we'll We'll, we'll pimp. Mm. We'll talk about that. At the end yeah, of we'll probably, yeah. Liam's cancelled. Yeah. Uh, show's over. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, Bye. guys. Thank it's been fun. So much. Uh, I regret nothing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you know Jeff Murphy has um, you know he's made a movie that we're we're fond of, and and this features a a, a, a familiar character there, actor from that movie, Jonathan are, Banks. There are things to appreciate about this movie. There are there are some yes, yeah, some more than others. Um, so this film stars Steven Seagal, Eric Bogosian, Catherine Heigl, Morris Chestnut, and Everett McGill. It was written by Richard Hattam and Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves yes, of that the, Matt Reeves. The, the Batman fame. Indeed. Uh, based on characters created by J.F. Lawton in the first film, on an estimated budget of <clears throat> 60 million. Where was that? On the screen. Um, the satellite. <laughs> the stock footage. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was some expensive stock footage. Yet, it grossed $104 million. It was It was a decent hit. Do you remember how much Under Siege made? Oof, more. Pull that. more? I, I, Under Siege, I recall being about a $35 million budget and being well over $100 million gross. It was, it, was mo it was monster. So this didn't do the same kind of business. But again, we talked about how in those days, the metric was like 65% right. was, was considered successful. Now, now things are very different. But it actually was in this era, as you just alluded to, like Seagal was popular. Mm. Um, this was kind of his um, heyday. Yeah. And you know this was a this was an important property, and it's a Warner Brothers movie. It's a big studio movie, uh, with like weirdly at times very high production value, and then other times like what's going on in this the frame? Like there's some really uh, uh, high quality stuff, and then there's some like 
cheap stuff. And we can, yeah. uh, I'm thinking of yeah. a couple things specifically. Um, but before we get there, yeah. will you tell us a little bit about our diehard DNA? I'd love to. So this is, of course, a classic diehard on a blank scenario. Bad guys take over a train, up to one guy to stop them, yada, yada. You know the deal by now. We got it. Um, it's a direct sequel to Under Siege, of course, one of the earliest and best diehard on a blank movies. Now, uh, there was a Philly special in here. Bing, 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 bing. Um, dual helicopter insertion sequence. I'm you doing know the helicopter I love that. Yeah. Uh, see also Predator. You can see Phil's soul leaving his body when this happens. Although in this one, it wasn't quite, it doesn't have, it's, you know, it hasn't got the Predator magic or the diehard, you know, yeah. Century City, like, uh, you know, Well, th- you know, we were, we were getting, s- getting stuffed with these movies so regularly that I feel like maybe there's like a potential hint of like fatigue with the kind of concept at this point. Yeah. Maybe like a little. No, that's not to say it's not a good concept. Of course, we based a podcast on it. But like, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like he's on a train this time. It's a little like a photocopy of a photocopy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like it, it sort of got a little diluted. And it just it doesn't have um, a lot of it feels very much like, look, let's just get this product in theaters, yes. not like, hey, like a director who's coming in who's really excited about mm-hmm. doing something interesting and exciting. But the problem, you know, working with Seagal in this era, era was just like, you know, uh, uh, such a such a difficult endeavor, right? He's just so, and he's a producer and he's a on producer, these movies, and a, not just a producer, like a, a full on above the title producer, not like yeah. a producer. Like even Bruce Willis isn't a credited producer on the Die Hard movies, even though it all orbits around him, and he right. effectively is a producer, but. Stagall actually is. So right. imagine dealing with, you know, the, you know all of that. Um, so a couple of other things that I caught in terms of diehard DNA. Uh, naked couple being interrupted mid-coitus by the arrival of One the terrorists. One of the few laugh out loud lines in this movie is, it's called an orgasm, which is like quite funny. Quite funny, quite stupid, but quite funny. We also had a bad guy demanding an important code immediately upon arrival. Mm-hmm. Computer hacking being integral to the villain's plan. Blonde angel of death henchman. That's Everett um, McGill. And uh, hero making IEDs out of available materials. And a final Mexican standoff where the leading lady is held hostage by the bad guy. So, you know, a lot of diehard DNA as you would uh, as you would. There's expect. also the, like, familial strife between Steven Seagal Good and Catherine Heigl, yep. which, like, I don't wouldn't have clocked when I saw this film in 1995. I don't know if I've watched this film in its entirety, since 1995, when it came out, it's almost 30 years old. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. But I where remember seeing... is the Steel Book? Where is the Steel Book? 30th steel anniversary, book Under so, Siege Two. So, very quick shout out to prep for this episode. I did try to rent this at no free ads, but Be Kind Video in Burbank, and they only had the first one on DVD. But they did help me out with the other movie I watched to prep. I just for to say, like, on my personal history of this, because I, in my enthusiasm yeah, to talk about this, I, I, I jumped over it, but. Uh, uh, but when I, you know, I was I went I went to university and studied film, and a bunch of my friends. Your um, specific area was Steven Seagal studies, if I remember. That's correctly. right. Yeah, I, 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 that was what my dissertation was on. <laughs> Your first class um, was squinting angrily, <laughs> muttering uh, monosyllables. Yeah. Uh, how to how to comb your hair you know. back, dress in black, and uh, lack be a little yeah, wooden. That, that basically taught me everything I need to know. But about podcasts, about, <laughs> about life, if, if anything, but. Um, me and my 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 boys, uh, the, who are all film you know film students, um, Keith, Adam, Marcus, uh, you know the whole the whole squad the of whole us gang. would have these quote bad movie nights, right? Where we would you know watch something like this um, and kind of you know have a few have a few tinnies, have a few cans, have a laugh. And this was one of those movies. And I, but it it what's it, what's it's actually not that fun. No, Sadly, even not. on that level of, of like, a uh, yeah, even on the level of just like a no brainer, like let's let's, you know, crack some cans and just have a laugh and watch bad guys get killed in some one liners. It's it's pretty like uh, it's pretty it's pretty tough stuff. Well, I think that that's a good segue into our section on anatomy of an action movie, which we'll cover right after this break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We're back. We're back with uh, the next section of the show, Anatomy of an Action Movie, where we explore the tenets. We have tickets to see Tenet. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> We're going. We're going. Re-release. It's our Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, man. Woodstock. No, Tenet. Tenet was re-released, yeah. man. It was amazing. <laughs> We're going. We're going to see Tenet. We're very excited. Uh, There are no friends at desk, but there are friends at the movie theater when we see Tenet. I just I want to meet the people who they're my people that are that show up for Tenet in IMAX. Yes, and like we're seeing it at maybe the best place in the entire country. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty exciting. Very exciting. That's our that's our usual uh, Tenet. So we'll be talking about that for months. (laughs) That's going to sort of be the look forward to that. yeah, Yeah, exactly. You guys excited? All right, so the first tenet of uh, Anatomy of an Action Movie is the premise, and the premise for Under Siege 2 is thus. While traveling from Denver to L.A. via train with his estranged niece Sarah, Catherine Heigl, ex-Navy SEAL Casey Ryback, Steven Seagal, finds himself in the middle of a terrorist takeover led by disgruntled computer genius Travis Dane, Eric Bogosian, who plans to use his experimental government satellite weapon to launch a massive attack on the eastern seaboard and the ticking clock is that dane plans to blow up the pentagon and apparently the nuclear reactor that's underneath it in 45 minutes unless his demands are met i don't mean to snarf but just the idea that there's a nuclear reactor i just love that they just throw it in you know like um and this of course leads to the government sending in stealth bombers to destroy the train once its location is discovered putting ryback between a rock and a hard place or between the rockies and dark territory. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Phil, so, Phil um, had fun with this, this synopsis. Now, the premise isn't bad, right? No. I think the idea of a satellite that can cause earthquakes, that's cool. That's pretty original and interesting. And as you were just saying, I think there's some good dialogue in the movie. You know, Matt Reeves is a writer on this movie. The yeah. story moves along briskly. Some of his talent shines through. But my biggest thought was that a passenger train is actually like a bad setting for a movie of this kind because it feels claustrophobic and cramped, but not in a good way. It feels Mm. like it limits and restricts the possibilities with the action, whereas in narrow margin, it works because it's more of a suspense thriller that's like cat and mouse movie. Yeah, narrow margin's a cat and mouse movie. I also would say that um, one thing that is 
effective about the original is that it feels like it could potentially happen in real life, whereas this one has this experimental satellite that can cause earthquakes that feels almost just science like, fictiony. Yeah, it's like it's like they abandoned any pretense of reality. And look, I'm not I'm not going to these. I I have like a bit somewhat puritanical relationship to action movies, and I I I want them to be. <laughs> this is after me saying I love Tenet, but I want them to be in like a realistic world, and and I think that that that's just like preposterous to uh to an nth degree yeah. and i think that that hurts it but i agree with you the train like it 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 also doesn't feel like they use the expanse of the train all that effectively it feels like it kind of takes place in like four cars yeah which you know only that's only in retrospect that i realized that but you're right it moves briskly it's entertaining i think the biggest problem with this movie is unfortunately the man at its center well yes um i mean I, I, and to your point about that, yes, there's not there's not enough room to swing a cat on the train, and and also it's a visually flat environment. The train itself isn't interesting, as in um, unstoppable, right? Where right. the train is almost like becomes like a character in its own right. You know, it's been talked of as if it's a monster movie, right? To some extent, right? But even the the costumes are all dark. The everything's earth tones. It's dull aesthetically, and the the dull one-dimensional acting from the man at its center really yeah. doesn't help when you already have those things working against it. So we'll move on to our section about uh, the hero. So Steven Seagal is back as as Casey Ryback. Um, what are the differences between him and John McClane in your mind? Well, I think— What makes him distinct as a character? I don't think he—the uh, unfortunate thing is that I think is what makes him distinct is the fact that he's kind of dour and, like, not all that dimensional and, like— whether it's him or it's how he's directed, which it could be a combination of two. I think, and okay, I think you know Andrew Davis got some things yeah, out of him yeah. in Under Siege. Like when there's that moment that we talked about in that episode, which you can go back and listen to, and which Andrew Davis approved of. He listened to it, which is amazing. The King I'll never of Chicago, get over it. we love him. Um, Andrew Davis forever. This is an Andrew Davis podcast. He has that scene where Seagal says like he doesn't like guns. And, like, yeah. it really works in that yeah. movie. Like, you kind of believe him as this guy who's, like, had to be violent professionally and, like, that's his – but it's not who he is and he's a cook. And, like, look, it's not Hamlet, but it's not bad. It's not? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, guys. Well, actually – To be or not to be. Jeff Murphy said that the underlying melody of Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, um, is, in fact – Hamlet. Hamlet. And John McTiernan said, get off my block. <laughs> Only I can say that. Yeah. Um, it's not Hamlet, but it works. I think the problem with this movie is that, and, you know, I don't know the man, but there's this is well documented. The ego of the lead of this movie gets in the way of the ability for him to create a human performance. And, like, he's very condescending to everyone in this movie. Yeah. Like, Morris Chestnut. Especially to Morris Chestnut. Who is, like, pretty charming, yeah. but very annoying. Uh, this role is very annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's, like, condescending to him. Uh, like he's almost a, a bully. He's a bully. There's he's a, a moment, bully to him. There's a moment where he's like, you got shot. And Steven Seagal's like, this isn't getting shot. And it's like, what? what is your deal? Like, why are you? And it just feels like, again, producer status. Like, he can't. It's like that rumor that The Rock can't lose a fight. It's like, it feels like Seagal can't always. Can't, well, he never cool. seems phased by anything. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, which makes it hard to care. Whereas John McClane, you know, certainly in the first in the first movie, it, you know, his feet are cut to ribbons. Right. His, his wife, he feels he's going to die. He's He feels he's going to die with things left horribly with his wife. And you really feel for the humanity and the vulnerability of the character. Whereas this guy doesn't even break a sweat. Even when two trains collide, leading to a huge he's explosion. Like he sort of lightly yeah. jogs, like, you know, no sense of urgency. You guys urgency. can't see it, but I'm running in a Charlie or, Chaplin-esque way. Yeah, it, it, there's no well, sort of sense of desperation draw, or, or anything. To draw you know? a parallel to the John McClane, something that came up in our episode with Chris Tilly. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hope you're listening. I know you love Under Siege too. But in our in our in our episode of Dark Vengeance, is that like one thing that people struggle with in that movie, and I totally understand this, is like if there was a bomb in a school, McClane probably would be looking for the bomb and not necessarily like chasing Simon down. And what that what that might say about an issue with the movie that like I still think it rocks. It does tell you about how like McLean's humanity. McLean is about people, and despite his kind of like cynicism and um, kind of like blowheartedness, 
he is like we've talked about from the beginning like he cares about people and he wants to protect hostages and like there's like a moment in this movie where Seagal's like I don't want anything to happen to the hostages and I'm like do you care? I can't tell that you care. You don't have like you just don't you don't seem to like Well, you know what's people. crazy and is... it's it's not like at his core He's like a hero with a heart of gold. It, he's not a hero with a heart of gold character, which McLean kind of he's is. He's a hero with a heart of stone almost. Right, just yeah. Like he's yeah. so stoic that it's just so hard to be like, it, yeah, it feels like the actor has subsumed the character. In the first and movie. And not in a fun way. Not in a fun way, no. Right. Uh, in in an ego, egomaniacal way. Right. But in the first movie, as you said, he actually does have moments of charm and levity and dimension. But in this one, it just feels like Sagalbi. This is my persona. This is my brand. I'm perfect. I, I know everything. Uh, and Jeff Murphy's like a, a – and this is – he's a competent, good filmmaker. But, like, I don't know that he has the, like, ability to restrain Andrew Davis and his performance. And you the, need and a the way, strong hat. Yeah, Andrew Davis was able right. to sort of restrain Seagal and find things in him. And he's a great actor. He's a, particularly a great director of, like – Historically stoic actors, like yeah. he got things out of. I don't Chuck think Norris, Chuck right? Norris. Yeah. I don't think that movie's yeah. amazing, but yeah. it, uh, you know, he gets things out of people. He 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 gets Harrison Ford to do vulnerable things that he'd only really done in like Witness. Mm-hmm. You know, like he really left found room in his performances and his directing of actors to to create sympathy for characters. And I just don't think that that comes through here. And it it might have something to do with Andrew Davis, but I think it more has to do with the egomaniacal yeah. nature of its star and, like, main producer. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I actually found Seagal so unlikable in this iteration that I found myself rooting for Travis Dane to succeed and being slightly annoyed when Ryback screws things up, right? Because it was just a way more charismatic, interesting, compelling, you know, riveting actor um, that, that was like... I, I'm interested in this guy. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in Travis Dane. I could care less about this guy's just like a a a, a black hole of charisma. It's just mm. it's just sucking any light into him. And you know, the the movie is just like it's all being it's all being dissipated, you know. So feels like a good moment to pivot our conversation to our villain. Villains, because I actually think yes, it's both worth also two. worthwhile talking about uh, our other villain, but Let's start with, should we start with uh, with Travis Dane or should we start with Everett McGill as a character whose name I forget? Yeah, well, let's, we'll talk about, we can talk about Everett McGill briefly and then I think we'll get into the meat of this. Uh, ooh, the um, meat. I think Everett McGill is very good in this movie. This is I his second time on the podcast. Yep, he was License on License to, to Kill. kill. Yep. Um, he's sort of the Mr. Joshua Carl in this configuration, he's the brute force against the sort of like more methodical villain. Though, ugh, I can't wait to talk about Bogosian. I think Everett McGill is great. I think, um, you know, there's this really weird moment that I want to talk about very briefly where Katherine Heigl sticks her fingernail into his cheek. Do you remember that? Yeah. She really holds it right. there. And he's like sexually aroused by it. Right. And I, th- I got to say, like, it's gross. But it's gross in like a way that I wish the rest of the movie had a little bit of like. It's that Twin Peaksy yeah. like creepiness. Well, again, Creep, he's a big you know, David Lynch. Actor. Well, yeah, it's yeah. like a little bit of that weird. It needs more weirdness. It needs more color, more flavor, more, a more subversive, odd, uh, eccentric choices. Yeah, and that right? it, it's like weird. If they did that now, people would be like, "Whoa, that's gross!" But like it weirdly, like when she sprays him with a pepper that spray and he awesome. takes it, like he's yeah. great and like totally. Totally like the badass angel of death kind of figure, and I like he's kind of a weird combo because he he almost is a little bit more like Stranix and Tommy Lee Jones because there's that weird moment when they're like I know you in Under Siege. Mm. Oh, that was and a he good. Fit, that was a great cigar. Oh, thanks. Wow, you nailed that. Wow, cool. <laughs> <laughs> we serve the same master. Wow. Sick. <laughs> but like, yeah, I just turn off any emotion Love or feeling. It. I do the exact opposite. Can of you music. do Seagal doing Hamlet because? Uh, <laughs> seems, madam. Nay, I know not seems. You don't remember? That? Wow! There we go. <laughs> I, also I thought you were going to do it more on obvious okay, speech, but you, went, you went, did a deep let me see, cut. Let's there. see what I got. Let's see what I got. Let's see what I got for the Hamlet heads. What's a good Hamlet line? I'm not doing the obvious one. No, I have to do the obvious Just one. Just do it. Okay. Give the people what they want. <laughs> the play's the thing. Just kidding. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> to be or not to be, that's 
the question. Pretty good. Amazing. Yeah. Nailed it. There you go. That's our Should that's, we... that's our show. So condensed. let's let's cut the let's let's sit or stop. Let's turn the recording off and let's just rewrite our Hamlet pitch with Stephen Seagal as Hamlet. Seagal is Hamlet. <laughs> hey Claudius. So Love much it. better. Love it. Um I think McGill is very good. He's really good. He makes unconventional choices. He's menacing and he's a great contrast to Bogosian as yes. Travis Stane. Yes. So that brings us to the moment you've all been waiting for. We've been hyping this kind of kind of since, since the, the show began. Of <laughs> with hence the hashtag Eric Bogosian forever. Forever. That forever is uh, trending, I believe, as of today. So as of today, yeah, we we brought him back. Um I did a little bit of prep. I watched talk radio. I read a little bit of uh, Drinking in America. Um, and I, I was going to watch Suburbia, but I ran out of time. But um, I love Eric Bogosian. I love him. I think What's your relationship with him? Like, how far well, back does you it know, go? For f- not, I mean, really, it probably started when I saw this movie, and then, like, he was on Law & Order. And I've, I've always just been a fan of... I, I have a soft spot for... American theater rencontres, you know, like, um, you know, Sam, we talked about this in the last episode. Sa- my son Samuel is partially named after Samuel Jackson, but also partially named after Shan- Sam Shepard, mm-hmm. the great American mm-hmm. playwright and actor. And I guess what I love about a guy like Eric Bogosian, he's managed to create this really interesting career. And I think guys like that, you know, for folks that don't know, he was a playwright but before that a monologuist who moved to New York City in like the the 80s and like was kind of got sober at like 28 mm. which is early 30s and like kind of lived this New York City life and put on plays at Joe Papp's public theater and if you know Joe Papp he really wanted to bring theater to the people he's in this era when like people and I don't think this really happens anymore when theater was engaged with in a larger cultural sense and a guy like Bogosian could write a play or write a one-man show and Oliver Stone would turn it into this movie that's like pretty interesting to watch and he also like you know, he starred on Law and Order he was a screen doctor for a script doctor excuse me for a long time and He now, you know, he's in Uncut Gems, which is a really interesting thing to talk about. He's on Succession. He sort of plays the Bernie Sanders character. And what I love about him is that to me, he sort of represents this like lineage of, again, like a John Cassavetes. Yes. Or a, to some extent, Ben Gazzara as an actor. Mm -hmm. He's a journeyman who's done everything and feels like he's lived hard. And so I just admire him. I think guys like those are, are sort of kind of like my like art dads, like the guys who really – and I didn't like necessarily – I read his plays in college. Um, I read Suburbia. I think it's like a precondition to going to American drama school. You have to read Suburbia. Also, I should say from Massachusetts, yes. Armenian-American yep. from Massachusetts. So like reading a play like Suburbia, <clears throat> though I grew up in a different kind of – not less. he grew up much more in a – or more slightly more urban environment, you know, Woburn, Massachusetts, where my father-in-law was from, uh, much closer to Boston than I was. But he's sort of got at the like – to be generic or cliche about the kind of like sick rot and dysfunction in a play like Suburbia in American culture. And I'll shut up in a second, but I revisited talk radio and I found that I was more impressed by it because I think when I was younger and read it and saw it, I viewed Bogosian as a truth teller. Like I viewed him closer to the character that he plays in that film, Barry Champlain, who's mm. based on a de- uh, ra- uh, shock jock um, guy who was murdered by neo Nazis. Um, but I found that Bogosian is as interested in exploring like shitty toxic maleness in that movie and in that script as mm. much as he is in being a guy who like wants to take down every aspect of American society through yeah. like being verbally witty and i i just think he's a a fascinating artist and like the kind that's hard to get made anymore he's an icon yeah. right and he you know he's he's a renaissance man as Thank well you. that's the right? best way to say like it. across so many different a true artist a true you know 
uh, a man of the theater, right? right. Um, you know, and so my, I remember seeing talk radio, I think when I, I was a kid and it's one of those kind of weird late night movies you yeah. stumble on and it's perfect as a late night movie because it's like a, it's a, like an 11 o'clock movie. The whole movie kind of takes place in the witching hour, right? Right. Like wherever all the, the crazies are coming out of the woodwork and calling in and you know, it has that kind of like dangerous energy. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it and being captivated by it and being captivated by him when I was too young to really understand the, the themes That's of the That's the other movie. thing is you get, you get you know? intrigued by these people at an age when you don't really understand what they're about, yeah, you know, but but he is so captivating as mm -hmm. an actor that you cannot take your eyes off him. Whether he kind of jumps off the screen. He really does. He has that Pacino, like like young Pacino, had that quality of the the intensity of the eyes. You know, he's very interesting to look at visually, mm -hmm. and he just has this magnetism that is so compelling. So I he was on my radar as uh, you know as and also. I think it's so cool when it was like he was a playwright and, and an actor. He created that character, but he also wrote the character uh, as a one-man play, right? When yeah. Talk Radio was was on Broadway, it was actually revived by uh, Leah Schreiber, right? Yeah, yeah. and they, they, I saw they that. became friends. Did you it really? Was great. How yeah, was it? What's it? What was what's the difference? I mean, you know, Leah Schreiber, I would say, is like a more internal kind of. I mean, that's not true. I, I think he did a great job, and I thought the production was really, really good. But I like never. I was still like, it's Eric Bogosian, you sure, know, like yeah. and, and it's like, a hard. Not at all to... a criticism of Leo Schreiber. He's an astonishing yeah. actor, and it's a play, so anyone right. can do it. Right. That's the beauty of theater, right? But um, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, my time in New York was always spent thinking about, even though I naively thinking about like how cool it would have been to be there when Bogosian was around. Of course, yeah. everyone was a fucking junkie, and like I don't right. think it was that great in the same sense. Well, it's but, romanticized retrospectively, yeah. and that's right? what moved a yeah. lot of people to New York yeah. from like 1990 to 2015. Was like. I want to be there when, like, the public theater was this entity, which it still is, but it's a different institution, as any institution would be many years on. But, yeah, he just, he represents this kind of, like, thoughtful but rock and roll. Punk, right, punk I American say, right? Like, a, it's almost like art punk yeah, or uh, art house punk. Yeah. You know, because the, the punk scene was on the rise when he was moving to New York, right, which was huge at that time yeah. with the famous clubs. Yeah. Um, and she hung out at, did drugs at. Right, and he at. was around that scene and, mm -hmm. you know, it's all performance art. He, industry, he hates that term, sorry, performance art, but, yeah. you know, a, a performer. Right. Um, you know, the, the just but a, a group of, like, wild and crazy um, artists. And I think, you know... He was part of that scene. A big point, there's, like, three sort of things that he's done in the last few years that I think are a really interesting reflection. So when you look back, the classical image of him is like, plays this shock jock, writes like a play called Drinking in America, Suburbia, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And he's kind of this like self-destructive force who's making these plays up and like living in New York and like living hard. Mm. <clears throat> and then something interesting, I think, has happened to him. The first is that he did a interview with Mark Marin, which is great. It's amazing. Amazing. I really listen. It's a to long it. yeah. episode. I did too. It's fantastic. And he is very self-reflective about who he was in that time. He's like, I was kind of a blowhard. I thought I knew everything. And I'm not like, you know, and now as a much older man with kids, I like know that I was like kind of full of shit. It's sort of his words, right? He's kind of like, he was making art, but he, in his, in his own words, he sort of like thought he knew more than he did. Mm. Which is really interesting because I actually think talk there's a there's a self awareness in the writing of talk radio that this guy is kind of as self destructive and full of shit as any of the people calling him on the phone. Yes. So I really appreciate that. He was on there to promote a book called Operation Nemesis, which is about the murder of high ranking Turkish officials after the Armenian genocide. It's a little bit like, it's compared to Munich, the story of the Israeli uh, operatives, the Mossad op operatives who took out the architects of the Munich Munich massacre. But I, I read Operation Nemesis after this episode came out and it reads in like three days. It is an amazing book with a final chapter that really gets into like the psyche and the the way everything in Turkey changed after in response to what happened in Armenia and kind of like the way this whole genocide was suppressed. And it is an 
amazing book. And what really intrigues me about it is that it's him reckoning with his like ethnic Armenian identity while writing this like, I mean, it should be an action movie. It is mm. fucking incredible. And like, I literally read it in three days. I couldn't put it down. I thought it was astonishing. I wanted to ask you about, because we talked about this off mic and how much you love this book. And uh, again, it speaks to him being a Renaissance band, right? This is, and this is um, a historical book, yeah. right? Even though it, I guess it reads like an action thriller, but it's a, it, he's a It's very he's dense and detailed. Yeah, he's, he right? turned himself into essentially Inc a historian. Which is incredible. But I was curious as to whether, it, you know, with, with Munich, one of the things I think the brilliance of that film is that it, the final, um, if there is a point to be made, it seems like it, it's reached a point of the destructive cycle of revenge ultimately achieves yeah, the nothing and just, of, just perpetrates war and horror, right? If you that, cut off this, that, the head of the that, snake, it that, grows that, back That seemed on. to be the point of, of Munich, and I thought it was very, very sensitive and thoughtful in how that film ended. I, I'm curious as to whether, do you, is there, is it just like laying out the facts or do you feel like he is... Um, is there any kind of um, like political or... statement, or does he does he does he just sort of say this is what happened and it was justified, or does he condemn it, or is it well, or is it just laying out the facts and it's for the reader to decide? At is the there... risk of like oversimplifying these things, because like it is tough to compare them, and whenever you're talking about genocide or these kinds of issues, like <laughs> it's tough to talk about. Of course. It. However, one thing that is interesting about this book is that the term, the genocide, the term was kind of coined to describe this event, mm. which was the murder of Armenians in Turkey by the Turkish government. And he lays out the facts in this really rip-roaring way. And any sort of, I think, Armenian, and I'm not Armenian, but I'm, but from what I understand, any sort of Armenian person writing about the Turkish genocide, the Armenian genocide, excuse me, is writing about the fact that it is vehemently denied by the Turkish mm. government and by large, they largely the Turkish Turkish citizenship. A lot of Turkish people, not all, don't believe that it didn't happen or that it's grossly exaggerated. And so the final chapter of the book goes into how exactly the propaganda machine in Turkey convinced people it never happened. So he's not writing about the futility of revenge, though I do think he gets into kind of like, what's so fascinating is that it was run out of Massachusetts. That's right, yeah, yeah. he talked about Watertown, that. Massachusetts, Merit. which is very yeah. Armenian, and, and I've spent some time there. Um, so they're getting revenge. It doesn't quite achieve that level of like, oh my goodness, uh, like the futility of revenge, it doesn't do anything. But what it does get into is how propaganda perpetrated by the state can convince you that something didn't happen right, right. and remake a society. And that's yeah. what's really chilling in the book. And what I remember, I mean, because I read the book 10 years ago, but what I remember, and I thought about revisiting it, um, just to revisit it. But what's so chilling about the book is this final chapter that he lays out, like this is how the Turkish government laid out this story so that they were able to convince people it didn't happen. And it's a very controversial topic yeah. um, in Turkey. I, I know I have knew, had Turkish colleagues who uh, lived in New York, very progressive, who struggled with it, who would say things like, I, I don't think it happened the way that it's described. And it's it just goes to, look, I, you know, it's this a complex topic, but I think it goes to show you that like the power of governments and media and, you know, various various actors to kind of complicate narratives. Uh, it, it, the book really gets at that, and it's it's amazing. What I think is so great about that, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll move on because, you know, we're not doing a political show, but I think it, this is important to talk about in the concept of, uh, you know, historicizing things is important. Without, without that, you know, that's where propaganda can grow. Right. Without facts, without actually And this is really fact-driven. So he's yeah. really, you're really doing a service to the world. Yeah. And to his community, his people, his eth ethnicity by documenting this story mm -hmm. that does, does have like misconceptions around it right. or whatever. So it's like, it just speaks to what. Uh, a kind of a hero. Yeah, this this guy one is, committed to you know? something bigger than himself. Yes, it's so admirable. And right, I, th I think what's the that sort of segues interestingly into he's spent the past few years <clears throat> as an actor 
doing these really interesting roles. He was on uh, Succession, playing mm-hmm. a sort of Bernie Sanders-like figure, and he's very good. He's only in a few episodes. But I'm so intrigued, and I think it's genius, how the Safdie brothers use him in Uncut Gems. So one thing that's really interesting, we've barely talked about him in this movie. I about that I, well. Is that yeah. he... Eric Bogosian is traditionally thought of as like vaguely ethnic. He's played a lot of, he's not a Jew. He's an Armenian. He's played a lot of Jews. He's done this kind of, these roles where he's kind of like the ethnic guy. And in Uncut Gems, he plays um, Adam Sandler's cousin. And he's, uh, Adam Sandler owes him money and he's trying to get money from him. And what's so amazing is that like, he's as much sympathetic to Adam Sandler's sort of disease of gambling and like not being able to live a normal life. And I think it's such a great choice to take Bogosian who has, who's historically played these like shitty toxic dudes and have him play a guy that's like survived to this point in his life. Like it really, and he's looking at someone doing the, if this movie were made 30 years ago, there's a solid chance Eric Bogosian would be up for the role. And to see him play the kind of like wizened older figure looking back with like equal parts anger and pity, the looks he administers in this movie, the looks he gives Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, especially towards the end if you've seen the film and you know what happens, are like devastating. I've seen the film three or four times and every time I'm like, Jesus Christ, Eric Bogosian should have been like nominated for an Academy Award for this my, movie. My theory about it as well to this point is that I think the Safdie brothers were, are huge fans of talk radio because it's a similar, there's a type of movie oh, that's totally. like a, a kind of slice of a slice of a man's life summarizing the totality of his life, yeah. which is what Uncut Gems is, right? Yeah. Which is what um, talk radio is, which is what like a, a movie I really like called What Just Happened with Robert De Niro. I like or, What Just Happened. Or yeah. Falling Down. It's basically like takes a compressed time frame of a man's life a lock that Tom Hardy movie yeah, is which I love like, I love lock, like yeah. that right yeah. it's like you're, he's having an affair he's trying to hold his marriage together uh, he's trying to solve a, a massive work crisis he's having an existential meltdown yeah. all of these kind of things get compressed in a time frame and it sort of summarizes the measure of a man to some mm. extent right and I think that's sort of what Uncut Gems uh, is about and that's why Bogosian's in there because I think that's they're good. huge talk, talk radio fans just to cap all this off, I mean, I, I, so basically he was on my radar after talk radio and then I would see him pop up in in movies like uh, Gossip. I thought he was so <laughs> cool in that as like the communications lecturer. Right. Uh, it was a very 90s movie, but I remember like he really popped in that. And a movie I really love called Wonderland. Are you, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but... Who's, um, who else is in that? So it's basically the true story of John Holmes that was done as a sort of... Roman right. Clef in, in uh, Boogie Nights, right? Um, right, right, but right, it, right, This is the true story. Uh, Val Kilmer plays John Holmes of the Wonderland Murders. Uh, so John Holmes, you know, famous uh, porn yeah. star, got mixed up in, in um, drugs and guns and craziness. And Eric Bogosian is basically the character, the real version of the character that Alfred Molina plays as this psychotic sh- I have gangster not seen this. called I'm totally... Eddie Nash. Wow. And he is absolutely terrifying in this movie movie as this God psychotic bless. gangster. That movie also features a astonishing performance from Josh Luke Josh Lucas as like a as a crazy heroin dealer, totally against type. Yeah. It's great. Um so yeah, huge Bogosian head. And also shout out to his website, 100 Monologues, yeah. which has a collection of incredible actors like Michael Ethan Shannon. Hawk. I watched it. The one I loved was with Stephen Lang as mm. like a, a sort of torture instructor for like a CIA type group. And it's really, really chilling. Um, the matter of fact He's nature of it. He's such a visceral writer. And like, make, he like, he does politics without like stating politics. He's just a, like, he, like something yeah. like that. Like he gives you this character as opposed to like someone talking. It's just amazing. And so he in this movie. Very, yeah. <laughs> let's get back on track. So, uh, get it? I think it's, oh, let's, let's get into dark territory. What's so great in this movie is that train he puns. plays. We love, we love a train bun. We're dads. He, we go watch trains after we finish recording. He doesn't, he's paranoid. He's anxious. He overreacts and he's like terrified of being hurt physically. And like, he's just so like, in this movie, it's such a nice contrast. He's kind of a coward yeah. in a weird way. And I, I just and... I think he leans into that really. 
He leans into his he strengths. He offers something pretty different for, for a diehard on a blank villain. Yeah, right? Everett just, McGill takes care of the bruising. Right. And he's and like kind of nervous. He brings this, yes, skittery, mm. uh, sweaty, nervous, like cowardly, egotistical energy. All of that, like Barry, it's like Barry Champlain t- takes yeah. over the train. Yeah, totally. You know, to some extent, all, with all of the complexity and dimension that comes with that. Um, and he's not a, a mustache twirling villain. He's interesting. Yeah, in he's sense. he's really interesting. I, I did want to, you know, the, the the gooning in this film is pretty high quality um, because not there only is there's Everett McGill, but there's also Peter Green. Peter Green as mercenary one, as he's credited. Is that what uh, he's credited? It's just kind of wild Poor for an actor of his, his yeah. stature. Especially at this time, he's done the mask. Yeah, and, or he's about fiction to. and yeah. usual suspects around this time. And, and Jonathan Banks as Scotty, who I, I love as my favorite terrorist here because of his choice to take the train driver's hat uh, that's like yeah. a 19th century that's a good uh, train, train yeah. driver. Shades of Chuffy for any Mar- Armstrong and Miller fans out there. You just um, completely lost me, but that's fine. Uh, no, I I think my favorite, t- I have to give it to Travis Dane. I know that's a that's a choice, but I just, Bogosian really makes an impression in this movie. And like, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk on the Mark Maron podcast. He's kind of like, yeah, I did the Seagal movie. This was like a high mark for him in Hollywood. I'm sure he got yeah, paid well for this. it was a big this. deal. It's and, a big um, deal. It's a big pop. It's an inspired choice to Warner cast. Brothers, yeah. big sequel, 60 million dollar budget you it's know, just it's a no really joke. inspired choice to cast him yeah and it's by far the most interesting part of the film the action moving on to that section the action's kind of largely forgettable there was such an interesting idea with the satellite that can cause earthquakes but we never really see it used properly totally. or effectively and in fact going back to the point i was making earlier when they do there's a there's a moment where they attack uh china and it's a particularly egregious moment because it uses this really clumsy dissolve. It's basically Kurtwood Smith and the, all the, the sort of uh, generals. Oh, we love him. I have yeah. a point about him later. Um, all the generals, you know, that cl- in the Pentagon, whatever, watching things unfold. And it just dissolves to what actually was unused footage from Seagal's previous film on deadly ground uh, that they just dissolve in to show this, like the China attack instead of showing anything cool or even just satellite imagery of something weird and crazy happening. You know what it weirdly made me think of and then we can move on is Black Hat. Yes. Like weirdly, yeah, yeah. the like yeah. the terror attack or the the the, the stuff at the beginning, beginning of Black Hat, yeah, which in yeah, the director's cut is um, it's a nuclear power station. Yeah, exactly. Right? But yeah. it's like I mean, this movie is not Black Hat. Uh, I would say the best action moment in this entire movie is the moment when Seagal is attached to the line that's on the train and Everett McGill shoots it off, and he's coming up. He's being pulled up by the train that's in locomotion, and. That he he grabs the edge. I think that that's a really inspired moment and like great action movie shit. But besides that, it's largely forgettable. I do like when he lights the guy on fire with the bomb. Uh huh. That but that besides that, it's kind of like what it, is this? It, it's cheap looking uh, VFX, poor quality back projection. The whole thing just feels kind of slapdash and and shoddy. And it really has the energy of a guy on set shrugging and saying, I don't know. Will this do? Yeah, that's like, fair. Do you know what I mean? It has that kind of like, Which is just, just get me off un- this fucking un- set. Unacceptable in an get, action movie. Get me away from this. Get me away from this guy and let's just get this in theaters and get like the calculus of the budget I want back. my money, please. Like it, it's just, it has that kind of, you know, I have Seagal, I have money, yeah. please? I need to edit as well. It's just like, just get it out. Just, yeah. It just feels like, it's, just get this edited. I feel like they cut about 10, 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> it's, that's it's this, There's a moment so where he's like in the train car and then it cuts to the villains for about 10 seconds and then he's outside the train hanging onto the side of it. You're like, that something happened in the middle that they yeah, cut out. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. Let's let's um let's move let's move on. Let's, let's move put on, on our let's so, take the train to the let's Oscars. Let's put on our entirely ugly black suits that we're wearing to get on the train. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and let's do the Action Movie Awards. Let's do it. So the first award is the John McClane Yippee-Kaye Award for Best Line. Uh, I had, I think, five here. Um, Chance favors the prepared mind, yeah. which was Dane's credo. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Um, someone's been shot. Where? Here. Bang! Yeah, that's... that's uh, Jonathan Banks getting his one good yeah. good moment. Of course, he was in Free Jack. Right. Um, with good movie. Jeff movies, Jeff Murphy's previous Jeff film. movies. Jeff that's Movies, previous name. Murphy. Directed by Jeff Movie. Um, I like this one. This is Bogosian. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captor speaking. Yeah, that's A little good. bit of play on words there. Yeah, A little bit of wacky word see, play. there's some good stuff here. And then, of course, you know, I love this one. Get me the president, which is in the first movie <laughs> as well. Admiral Bates. 
And this almost felt like a Bogosian improv, or this has to be a Matt Reeves line. You go get your throat ripped out. I've got eight million people to kill and a billion dollars to pick up. I mean, that's some good villainy. That's some good villainy. I'm going to go with someone has been shot, the Jonathan Banks line. It's very... Uh, Robert Patrick in Die Hard 2. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, You know what I mean? Have the you real seen heads, this no. boy? The real heads, no. Yeah, that's true. Um, the Hans Gruber Master Thief Award for stealing the film. Or should we even bother? Is there any, uh, yeah, uh, Eric Pagosian. Move <laughs> on. Let's move, move on. Yeah, um, we're out of time. Morris, Morris Chestnut and Catherine Heigl and Everett McGill all nominated, but let's, let's yeah, be real. Eric Pagosian. Eric Pagosian by, uh, by Country Mile. The Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the Movie. Um, two nominees, uh, chain-smoking CIA scumbag Tom Breaker, um, who's back with uh, even more greasy hair, and Casey Ryback, especially for the way he treats Morris Chestnut in those early scenes. I'm going to give it to Tom Breaker because he sucks so hard in this movie. <laughs> he's, like, he's next no level offense to him. I do like that the movie hates the CIA. Yeah. That I can get on board with. Yeah, it's definitely deeply suspicious of, of government and uh, military-industrial complex. Best death. No more table. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Wow. <laughs> I love it. Seagal awesome. as Marco. Right, your Seagal is on point. Like, thank you, thank you. Props. Thank you. Um, I'm the, moving to Russia. <laughs> the bad guy going under the train. That's, that's it. Was pretty good. The bad guy getting shot by a flare. Um, Jonathan Banks dying when the two trains collide and Bobby throwing hot henchwoman Fatima out of the helicopter. We do like a hot henchwoman on this show. We've got a great one coming up next week with Goldeneye. Oh, we do. One of the, one uh, of the all-timers. I'm going to go with the guy going under the train because that's that's brutal shit. All right. Um, well, let's take a quick break, but then we'll come back with uh, a special Seagal-themed edition of the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz where the scores can really change. Question number one. Let's just dive in. Let's do it. Actor Peter Green, who is well known to audiences for his work in films like Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects, and The Mask, appears here as Mercenary One. But in which 1993 Die Hard on a Blank style urban thriller does he appear as a thug named Sykes? Uh, Judgment Night? Yeah! Holy shit! Nice! I don't know how I got that. Great. Die Hard in a Bad Neighborhood. I like that movie. All right, well done. Question number two. This isn't the first time that the specific train in this film has appeared in a major motion picture. In which critically acclaimed 1985 action movie did this very same locomotive also appear? Uh, call Al. Is it Runaway Train? Yes, okay, it is. Okay, great, great, great. Wow, wow. wow. Yeah, you don't even wow. need the clues. Mm. All right, here we go. Convoluted corner. Oh my God! Are we radio DJs? Okay, Los Angeles. Here we go with this. Let's talk about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey until our eyeballs melt. Question number three: Legendary character actor Kurtwood Smith appears in Under Siege Two as Air Force General Stanley Cooper. The next year, Smith would appear as the Secretary of Defense in a stylish action film that also dealt with a major crisis involving the U.S. Air Force, where stealth bombers again feature prominently. Executive decision. Okay, a call out. Can you name that film? Sorry. You want to call out? Okay. All right, we'll call it out. We're phoning a friend. Have I seen this movie? You have. Okay. It's a very simple clue. Uh. The film was directed by John Woo. Oh, Broken Arrow. Oh, he is. In, we've, he's the one that says we've got ourselves yeah, a Broken yeah, Arrow. exactly. Damn it. And that's one of the most thrilling trailer moments. But, All right. Um, you, did pretty, you did pretty well. Um, I have one for you. Oh, great. You put me in the hot seat. Brenda Baki plays Captain Linda. I don't remember her last name <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. In what 1995 film did Brenda play a Hollywood legend? Ooh. A ninety-five film. I, I, I gotta say, I couldn't really recognize. Sorry, nineteen ninety-seven. She played a Hollywood legend in, in a nineteen ninety-seven film. film. Would you like to call out? I would. The film was directed 
by a director of a previous film on Die Hard on a Blank. Hmm. That director's name is Curtis Hansen. Okay, okay, okay. Hollywood legend. Okay. Uh, Alec Confidential. Yeah, she plays uh, She plays Lana Turner. Of course. Yeah, she's great in it. She's got one scene, but she's very, very good. There's that great Kevin Spacey. She is Lana Turner. And Guy Pearce is like, oh, it's really, really Throws good. Throws a drink in yeah. his face. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a good oh, one. That's yeah. a good one. Because I was looking at her. I was like, I recognize this person. She's good. That about Under does it. Too. That Look about that. does it. Bing, bang, bang, boom. Eric Bogosian We're forever. Read Operation Nemesis. Uh, watch Uncut Gems if you haven't. I think Uncut Gems is a masterpiece. Check out 100monologues.com mm-hmm. for more of his uh, yeah, more of his work. Every, any There's like a bunch of incredible actors doing his stuff. his WTF with Mark Maron is, is a special one. I think it's a really good and episode. And Wonderland as well. Like I highly recommend that film. Highly underrated movie. You um, know what film you should also check out is uh, Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. Because by the time this comes out, we should have guested on an episode of Eye of the Duck with our pals Adam Volerich and Dom Nero, where we talked about that movie extensively and our love for it. And uh, yeah, uh, Eye of the Duck is a really good show. We love it. They're doing a cyberpunk season. Yeah, Uh, It's really cool. Um, Started with Blade Runner. They're just done Tron. And, uh, you know, if the episode on Total Recall is not out now, then it should be out within the next two weeks. Two weeks. I can't get him to stop doing that. <laughs> By the way, very, 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 very quickly, I need to just, Jesus, it is like the radio hour in here right now. Um, I want to just quickly share, we did a poll on Twitter oh, yeah. Um, yeah. where we talked about uh, what is your favorite Die Hard sequel? And um, it kind of blew up. Kind of blew it? up. Yeah. Got a lot of got a lot of votes. Um, the clear winner with seventy two percent of the vote was Die Hard of the Vengeance. Uh, Die Hard Two, Die Harder got twenty four percent of the vote. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard got two percent. And some Joker voted for a good day to die hard. Good day to die hard. Jai Courtney was on our poll and he gave it one point three percent. But what's interesting is some of the reshares of it. One person said Run Lola Run, which yeah. I think it's just a funny thing to say. But I do love that movie, and that's kind of like a frenzied bank heist movie. So that's interesting. Um, and then there was a couple. Um, Scott, excuse me. Scott Mendelson, who's a writer at Puck, writes about the box office a lot, uh, reshared our poll and said 16 blocks. Yeah. Which I think is a really cool is a really cool one. And Sean O'Connell. We're gonna do it. We're gonna sure. do it. And Sean O'Connell, who uh, is writing a book about Bruce Willis, retweeted and said, I will go to my grave defending Die Hard 2. And listen, Die Hard 2 rules. It doesn't need defending. Yeah, it doesn't need defending. We love it. Uh, someone, I love it. Even someone was like, who voted for a good day to die hard? You know what? Like the movies yeah. you like. Yeah. All enjoy, are welcome. All opinions enjoy are yourself. welcome. It's fine. You know, it's not... You're wrong, but it's <laughs> fine. Uh, at Die Hard OAB on Twitter, at Liam G. Billingham on Twitter. Uh, Phil, are you... Uh, now, you've been working pretty closely with the people at X on your tweets, right? <laughs> they've been, they've yeah. been... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, first there was Grok, now there's Phil. There's going to be a Phil I don't, I don't know what's going on. I throw stuff out there. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I plant seeds. Sometimes they grow. <laughs> uh, I'm also uh, back on American English Soccer, if that's your if that's your thing, uh, as well. So I'm on that podcast talking like about we'll... the English Premier League. Sorry, it looks um, like we'll be guesting on a lot of pods in the in the near does. future. So yeah, we'll update had you. Had some nice invitations, some great shows. Mm-hmm. So next time on Keep the sh- watching the sky <laughs> <laughs> for Eric Bogosian's yeah. earthquake causing satellite <laughs> thing. <laughs> next time on the show. <laughs> Goldeneye. Big one. Big one. Big one. For England, Phil. Oh, this, I don't know why that really, like, does, like, find that quite emotional. I just want to let everyone know that there's going to be a lot of German New Wave director Fassbinder chat on that because of a very specific actor who's in the film. So if you Mm. haven't watched your Fassbinder films, uh... Get to work because uh, we're going to be talking about that. Phil yeah. isn't ready, but James we're going to. James Bond is rebooted and is back with Pierce Brosnan uh, as 007 in Golden. Love Light. this movie. Join us uh, in the next uh, in the next edition of Die Hard on a Blank. We'll be back na- next time with Zanya Zengreva on a top. <laughs> Thank you.
Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.